This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Artists have been in the news lately. I mean, we have a historic strike by the Writers Union and the Screen Actors Guild at the same time. Famous artists like Sarah Silverman are suing tech companies over use of their work to train the AI computers. Even Andy Warhol, despite having died 35 years ago, was just the subject of a Supreme Court case about his work. Reminding all of us that artists have legal issues. But too often, the only legal issues we hear about are those affecting well-known artists. But what about artists who are just starting out? Or those who have been prolific for decades, but they never got rich or famous from their work? What about the legal needs of an artist like this one? He lives in New Jersey. He was discovered because he was a janitor in the courthouse. And they would hang his pieces up. And he just painted every day. He just discovered art in his late 60s, I think, and started painting every day. And he would bring his work up and put it up in the courthouse. And this one person, a lawyer, came along and said, oh, I think you're brilliant. I'm going to be your agent and got him to sign an agent agreement. And then this turns out that this was a very unethical lawyer. Let's put it that way. And then it got him to drafted a will where this guy was the beneficiary of the will. I mean, it was it was as bad as you could imagine that it was. And luckily, this artist realized there's something wrong with this picture. He came. What does an outsider artist do when their art becomes a vehicle for someone to take advantage of them? What does a music arranger do when negotiating with a powerful Broadway production company? What does a small-time documentary filmmaker do? when he has a dispute with his project partners about who owns the footage. These are all legal problems, but these are artists without the money to hire a lawyer. Stay with us to find out how they can get access to pro bono lawyers and how you could be one of those pro bono lawyers. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts does what it sounds like it does, provides free legal services to low-income artists all sorts of artists and creators on a wide variety of legal issues that relate to their art. They also educate artists about the law. A moment ago, 
You heard Amy Lehman, the Director of Legal Services at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts in New York City, describe the situation of an artist who needed help. We will hear more about him later, but first we need to talk about the reality for artists generally. Once someone is famous for their work, we do tend to assume they are well-paid and able to hire lawyers for their legal issues. But the vast majority of artists are not famous, and they are not well-paid. Here's just one example. 70% of actors earn less than $40,000 a year. Artists are overwhelmingly living on low incomes. You know, and this is not a, a modern problem. Artists from, you know, the 15th century were not sustaining themselves and, you know, ended up becoming famous after they died. And that didn't help them. Better that the artists be supported in their lifetime, I think. But for the other idea is that artists should be paid for their work. Well, the problem with artists is that they will do it no matter what. They'll do it because they have a passion for it and because they can't not do it. And so painters will paint, dancers will dance, writers write books and maybe they don't get published, but they have to try. So we have this gig economy, which has become exacerbated with the, in the last 20 years, I think, where people have no support unless they actually get a job that pays them a few hundred dollars until they get their next job and they have no health insurance and they have no support systems but they're not going to stop doing what they do because that's who they are. Amy Lehman knows from personal experience how passionate an artist can be and just how stuck they can feel when a legal problem comes up. Because I wasn't always a lawyer, <laughs> and uh, my first career was as a ballet dancer, and there was a time when I was dancing in another country, and I had an issue with a contract, and it didn't go well, and I didn't know where to turn, I didn't have lawyers available to me, I didn't have any money, and it was challenging, and I knew at that point that I wasn't the only person who had ever gone through something like this. And I thought, you know, one day I'm going to have to find a way to be able to be in a position to help other artists, other dancers at the time. But it was a long journey from that moment to finishing my dance career, retiring, going to college, finishing college, working in the theater industry, which was my next career, and then going to law school. But I knew when I went to law school that I would be volunteering with VLA. And that's what happened. When I got out of law school, I started volunteering with VLA, which I did for 10 years when I was litigating. And when a position opened here, it was just a, good, a great fit and I couldn't be happier. I asked Amy to tell us more about Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, how it works, and the breadth of work they do for artists. The idea is that we ask for the assistance of pro bono attorneys to team up with us to do the pro bono work in advising the clients and then sometimes taking on the clients as their own for pro bono services when they need more advanced assistance. So we do outreach through various arts organizations. Right now we have a, a strong relationship with the freelancers union and we do clinics there and classes. We teach classes there. And so 
when they have an issue, whether it's it can be anything from, you know, a dispute that they're having to wanting to understand what their legal rights are for their intellectual property, reviewing a contract, drafting or negotiating documents, forming corporations, forming nonprofits. Sometimes we have clients who have trust in estates matters or immigration matters, or they might have a real estate matter related to their art. Mm-hmm. I heard you mention earlier the Freelancers Union. Yes. And I have, what is that? It's an organization that provides support for freelancers. They have what's called the Freelancers Hub in Brooklyn, in Industry City in Sunset Park, where they have computer stations, they have employment coaching, they have resources, other kinds of resources for the freelancers. And our relationship with them is that we provide them with educational programming. We do contracts business entities, employment, and copyright classes every year. And we do these clinics for the artists. So four times a year, we'll do a clinic where we can serve up to 25 clients in one day. And lawyers will come and do a you know very short evaluation of their issue and, and give advice and maybe examine a contract for them and, and walk through what, what can be done for them. The Freelancers Union in New York was founded about 25 years ago to meet the growing need for independent workers to have access to insurance and other networked resources. Volunteer lawyers for the arts recognized that independent artists needed access to resources even earlier. We've been around since 1969. It was founded by an attorney who was working with a choreographer who needed assistance. And he realized then that it wasn't just her who needed help. There were other artists out there and they formed this nonprofit and it just took off. And I know there's VLA branches in many cities. Did it start in New York City? New York is the first. We'd like to say we're the, you know, we're the first VLA. We are not actually connected structurally with any of the other VLA type organizations around the country. I believe California for the Lawyers for the Arts was the next one in terms of longevity. And there are VLAs all over the country. So just who are the lawyers volunteering with VLAs around the country? Amy told us about the wide range of needs. Immigration, contracts, trusts, real estate. And there's the obvious legal need, intellectual property. If a lawyer isn't a former artist themselves and isn't a patron of the arts, why should they prioritize helping artists as a pro bono project? Why should a lawyer care about whether art gets created or not? My gut reaction to that is everyone is a patron of the arts, even if they don't know it. If you find someone who tells me they ingest nothing that is the subject of creativity, I won't believe them. They watch TV, they watch movies, they play video games, they read poetry, they read novels. All of that is arts, right? So if they enjoy what they are consuming, they should care about who's creating it. And who knows, the artist you're working with may end up creating something, you know, six years in the future that becomes your favorite television program. And if you hadn't been able to help them in this period, their career may have taken another trajectory. That's Jordan Lehman, an intellectual property lawyer who has been volunteering with VLA throughout his career. I am the co-head of Intellectual Property Legal, 
at the Bank of New York Mellon, a large financial institution based in New York, but with offices around the globe. And I am obligated to say today that my views are my own and do not represent those of BNY Mellon. What brought you to volunteering here? Well, I certainly don't have a professional dance career behind me like Amy, but the arts have always been incredibly important to me. I was a classical vocalist at one point in my life. I've been a huge reader my entire life, a huge patron of theater, musical theater, et cetera. And when I went to law school, I realized very quickly that the arts and the law can be connected. It's the reason I became an intellectual property lawyer that focused on copyright and trademark and marketing and all these issues, because I I was able to bring my kind of passions in these two spaces together and unite them into a career and a job, which was wonderful. And it's, it's worked out well. But that also comes with a responsibility to artists and being able to help them create their art, distribute their art, publish their art, even if it's things that are not my personal taste is so important because all art can be important and can have impact, whether that's through publishing, whether that's through dance, whether that's through, again, musical theater or, you know, 3D, 2D art. All these different forms can do wonderful things and communities can uplift communities. But if they're dealing with legal issues that get in the way, uh, they're not able to do that. And, you know, to the extent that we as lawyers can help them along the way and then stand back and be able to have this appreciation for what they are doing that their you know creativity is able to put out into the world is is wonderful and i've been lucky to be part of vla and hopefully get back in some small way i was actually pretty excited to talk to an intellectual property lawyer precisely because things like ai and the andy warhol case have been lifting up such interesting questions about who has what kind of rights But Jordan and Amy were also able to tell me about some issues affecting VLA clients that had never occurred to me. So in intellectual property, this is a bit of an outdated expression, I should say. There's what was traditionally referred to as soft IP and hard IP. Hard IP meaning patents. The hard sciences, you know, life sciences, computer science, etc. Soft IP meaning copyright, trademark, you know, some advertising, marketing, right of publicity, the softer, the softer stuff, so to speak. So I practice primarily in the softer <laughs> space. Although these days with the explosion of artificial intelligence and a lot of these other technologies, some of these distinctions are going away. And, you know, formerly copyright lawyers and formerly patent lawyers are working together in the exploration of how IP interacts with these new technologies. I'm curious what your thoughts are, both of you, on this explosion of artificial intelligence and what it's going to mean for artists and what it's going to mean for what low-income artists might need from lawyers like volunteer lawyers for the arts. Well, I can say I was fortunate enough to do an education session with VLA on artificial intelligence about three months ago because we recognized that many artists had questions about artificial intelligence. What does it mean from a positive perspective? You know, what can they do? How can they use it to create and further their art? But what are some of the legal risks, right? But, you know, copyright issues in AI. This is something that has been in the headlines, you know, particularly with some of the image generators that are out there, such as Stability AI and others, or the creation of novels, right? The generative AI has the ability to, if you put in what's called a prompt and say, write me a novel that includes, you know, these types of characters, make it, or a novella, you know, make it a hundred pages or a certain number of words, talk about these plot points, and it will create something. 
And how does that impact artists? What does it mean they can and can't do? This is very much an evolving area, but it's one that, you know, we need to stay close to and, and support artists however we can. We also had a class on NFTs. We had a couple of classes on NFTs as well, because that's an area where artists are are really diving in and finding ways to, you know, generate art and and make money in ways that they were never able to do before, which is really interesting. But again, there it, it sort of opens up so many questions about copyright and ownership and all of these things. NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. Investopedia says that non-fungible tokens are unique cryptographic tokens that exist on a blockchain and cannot be replicated. NFTs can represent digital or real-world items like artwork and real estate. You know, what we thought was way in the future a few years ago is now here, and new things that we never even anticipated are coming even faster than we than we thought. And the law has a really hard time keeping up with this. So, you know, not just because the laws don't exist, but because people have to learn what are these things. And it's not like just learning to apply law to something that existed before. It's something that never existed before. So something brand new exists in the world and you have to create a body of law around how to handle it or think about it. Meanwhile, the artists or the, or the others inventors who are out there using it don't care about any of that. They just want to go out and create. And how, what are the risks to the artist as well? You know, you do have many artists and there are, you know, creative groups out there and industry associations that have said that much of this is taking from artists, right? And using their works to lead to the output of this type of content. And is that right? Is that wrong? Is that copyright infringement? You know, all these questions are very much still circulating. Although I have a mentor who likes to say, that the law in IP doesn't necessarily change as technology develops. We just have to think about how to apply it. That's one of the things that's so amazing about BLA in the New York area, right? You are at one of the epicenters of creativity in the world. You have dancers, you have writers, you have so many individuals who are putting out this creative and expressive content. I've had the fortune of working with film producers who you know, have some issues around what kind of agreements they need with the directors, with the filmmakers, with the makeup artists that are part of the creation of a short film. You know, we like to say uh, on the VLA volunteer side, and I know VLA as well, please have a contract. Please have something in writing, right? I, at some point, I don't even care if it's on a napkin. Please <laughs> have something because this idea of a handshake agreement doesn't work from, from the most part from a legal perspective. And so we can help them through a lot of those issues, whether it's the creation of a template agreement that they can then use. And, you know, we hope that all of these films are successful and all of these works are successful. The goal we have to think about this is what if this gets picked up by a major studio? What if this gets picked up by a television production company? You know, are the rights in place? Are the right forms in place? The right percentages assigned to each of the contributors that people will walk away with this feeling like they were well represented? A lot of the issues that do come up are in the intellectual property space, but that is by no means exclusive of other legal issues people who want to refer to famous characters or famous celebrities in their productions. You have some right of publicity issues, which can be very interesting and fun for, for attorneys. You know, most attorneys do not get to deal with celebrities unless you, you know, work in the media entertainment space in California. So to say, you know, today I looked into the right of publicity, right of publicity issues associated with X, Y, and Z celebrity. I was on, you know, websites that I don't usually get to go to, like, you know, people. That can be that can be very fun and trying again to make sure that we're able to 
provide counsel such that the artist can create, sometimes using the likeness of a celebrity. If we say, you know, we think the risk is low, obviously it's up to the artist at the end of the day whether they want to move the project forward. And, you know, I'm not going to I'm pretty lucky. I'm not aware of any issues with the counsel I've provided over, the, over time and over period. I have seen thousands of clients come through in the in the almost seven years I've been here, you know, and a, a few do come to the to the top of mind. One of whom gave a beautiful testimonial at our gala a few years ago. Who was he's a a music arranger, and we don't think about music arrangers. We think about composers. We think about book writers. We think about the lyricists. We don't necessarily think about the people who do the music arrangement. And he had done the musical arrangement for a very famous Broadway show. 20 years ago. And in the consultation, the lawyers were looking at him like, we have no idea what you do. We don't understand this. And so he sang for us and demonstrated the difference between a song as it's written and a song as it, with a different arrangement. And it was just astonishing and wonderful. And he, his issue was that he wasn't getting royalties in a new production that was, had been brought back. And so we placed him with one of our board members, actually, who worked with him on this litigation and won. And he was very, very happy with, with that. And and he's just a wonderful, charming man. But, you know, an artist who doesn't, even though he's a successful artist in having, you know, worked on a Tony Award winning musical, he doesn't have the money to hire a lawyer. So we were really, really thrilled to be able to help him with that. This has got to be making you feel inspired to help artists, right? Which, of course, raises the question, how does volunteering with VLA work for the pro bono lawyers? We are always looking for volunteers to do you know, in-house consultations with us to volunteer for the freelancers clinic. And then for the attorneys at law firms, which we are partnering with or, or corporations that we partner with, they do, we do clinics at those firms as well. So almost once a week throughout the year, we're doing clinics at the law firms where we bring six artists to the firm. Those attorneys can volunteer for a very limited scope, 45 minute consultation with that client and have no further obligation to the client. Unless they are really fascinated and interested in working with that client going forward, they can let us know if the client needs more assistance. Amy mentioned something important there. The corporations they partner with. VLA is a great avenue for in-house counsel lawyers to do pro bono. Jordan told us about how VLA was right there for him in his transition from law firm to in-house at BNY Mellon. I was at a, a large law firm for a number of years doing soft intellectual property work, so copyright trademark litigation for the most part. And while I was there, I did a lot of VLA work. I had a number of clients, both short-term and longer-term representation. And when I left the law firm and moved to BNY Mellon, I was even more fortunate because BNY Mellon has a long-standing relationship with VLA. And so I was able to kind of slide in and, and work with that existing program and felt like I didn't miss a beat. So that's interesting. Let's talk about that. Like, because I think a lot of people believe or, or feel that whatever the pressures are on billable hours and, and the impact on doing pro bono in law firms, I do think some people think that once you go in-house, it becomes even harder 
to do pro bono? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It's certainly very different. You know, when you're at a law firm, you have the support of a law firm behind you. You have the library, you have, you know, legal support staff who are able to help you with cases and management. Once you're, once you're in-house, you know, a lot of that falls on, onto you. So it can be more difficult to do certain types of matters, but, you know, through shorter term consultations, you know, spending an hour or spending several hours, you know, working with a client, it's very doable and it can be part of an in-house attorney's, you know, larger commitment to pro bono, to DEI, to giving back. And it's something that we certainly stress at BNY Mellon. And I know a lot of other corporations stress as well as the importance of their attorneys continuing to do pro bono work throughout the year. For attorneys who are in-house, pro bono can and should still be a part of your life. I'm very fortunate BNY Mellon has an incredibly strong pro bono program. But if you work somewhere that doesn't, seek it out, help build it, and the rewards and the outcomes will be well worth it. Given that artists may often feel at the mercy of lawyers, like lawyers who work for corporations, I think it must be an interesting challenge for VLA lawyers to build trust with artists. Artists who might feel estranged from the business world or ill-treated by the lawyers working in it. Whenever I'm working with a new VLA attorney, which we're fortunate, we have a lot of attorneys at our, at our company that want to partake in VLA. And they say, how do you usually structure your consultations? And I say, listen, right? Spend the first 10, sometimes the first 45 minutes <laughs> listening. Right. Because I feel like in many instances, these artists feel like they're not being listened to. They're being talked over. So just listen, you know, take notes, ask follow up questions, engage and the legal issues will emerge. And hopefully they are easy to solve. And hopefully it does only actually take five seconds of legal advice at the end. But the listening is so, so critical. Amy, do you have thoughts on, on that question of building trust with artists who may either be suspicious or have had negative experiences in the past with the legal and business world? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that, besides what I've already said, but one of the things that I think is really critical, and in fact, I could talk about this for years, not just hours, is education. You know, one of, besides legal services, we provide educational programming for artists. They're also CLEs, but also for artists because they don't get it in their own education. They learn how to be artists. They go to school for film, for writing, for visual arts, for dance, whatever it is. And no, none of these educational institutions are providing them with the business skills, the understanding of legal issues, or even marketing that they need to become successful when they graduate. And I think that's a crime. And so when they come to us, and oftentimes they'll come to us thinking they are, have one legal issue and they, it's really something else because they're not lawyers. They're not expected to be right necessarily. But, you know, if we can guide them to a basic contracts class or a copyright or, or fair use class or a class on trademark, that empowers them. Because once they have a, a better understanding of what their rights are, that I think is a way for them to gain trust in listening to the attorneys who are trying to help them. Amy is concerned that arts education may not be preparing students to be artists in the real world. 
She gave the example of film schools that do a great job teaching students to get the shot they want, but don't teach them to get the rights for what can be seen in that shot. You know, that art in the background, do you have the right to film that shot with that? You know, we had one client come to us with, there was graffiti in the background. And it might have been very recognizable graffiti, and it was central to the background of a shot that they they didn't, it wasn't panning across, it didn't move. The filmmaker just saw the actors in the foreground, didn't even realize that they were basically using that background and, you know, they, they chose the location. So, you know, they weren't unaware of it. But the graffiti artist saw it and came after them. So, you know, it doesn't always go unnoticed. Wait, I have a question. What are your intellectual property rights over graffiti? Sure. So copyright exists, you know, from kind of the moment of creation meets embodiment of the art, right? So the creativity that goes into graffiti, which there are incredible graffiti artists out there with just a great deal of creativity. Once it's painted onto an actual physical substance, it can't just be, you know, in the mind, it needs to be a living embodiment. Copyright exists because that is, that is the requirement. It's that spark of creativity fixed in a tangible, what's called a tangible medium of expression. Now, of course, if it's a public building, if it's a building that doesn't belong to the graffiti artist, there's a lot of other things that come into it but there's certainly creative creativity and there's there's an argument and an argument that's made many times that there's considerable copyright protection for certain forms of graffiti art. So I'm doing a very traditional lawyer thing where I'm like, well, how could you have copyright protection over something that might actually be a criminal act? <laughs> but I think the law didn't imagine those two things together. VLA has had a huge impact on a wide variety of clients. I was struck by all the testimonials on their website from artists who were helped by pro bono lawyers working with VLA. And there was one client who had a dispute with a theater company over the rights to a play that he had written. And he said in his quote, sometimes you need a grown-up in the room. VLA is that grown-up. And actually what struck me about that is the way that artists who have this enormous expertise and talent can be made to feel as if they're not good at adulting because they didn't do the contract well or the release form. And I just wonder if you have thoughts about that, because I think that might mean people are coming to you with some level of shame that they've failed at adulting. And how do you how do you manage that? I think this, again, goes directly back to they're not failing at adulting. The people who gave them their educations failed at educating them. And artists are definitely not getting the things they need in, in college. Or if they didn't go to go, go to college, they didn't get them before that. I didn't go to college till I was, you know, finished my dance career. So they are not failing. The artists, I don't know that, I don't think that they have shame about it. I think that they recognize that, that the system failed them. Jordan, do you have any thoughts on the way in which the system can intentionally or unintentionally make artists feel like failures because they didn't know these legal things? I think that as attorneys, we obviously did, you know, an additional layer of education and we are used to walking into rooms where we need to demonstrate that we, <laughs> we got our money's worth spending that money on school. And it's walking into a room with artists and generally you know, people in life without making people feel like they are somehow lesser than. 
They are bringing something different to the table than you. I could not paint, you know, anything other than maybe a stick figure for the life of me. And recognizing that that is equal value, if not more value, right? And one of the reasons I work with artists is because I'm in awe of their talents and what they're able to bring into the room. And I hope that I can help them. You know, we can fit together to solve an ongoing problem. But it's how you walk into the room, how you speak to artists or others and making them realize that you are there to help. It's not to demean. It's not to make them feel like they're lacking something. It's to help them solve a problem. So again, they can go back to doing what they do way better than any of us. What kind of impact does volunteering with VLA have on the careers of the pro bono lawyers? How can they get even better at what they do through this volunteer experience? Amy had some thoughts. You know, the original VLA client, the choreographer I mentioned earlier, I actually, when I was a litigating, a litigation associate at a law firm, I saw on the case list, a choreographer needs help with some corporate compliance. And I didn't know who it was. I didn't know anything about it. I was a litigator. I didn't even know about corporate compliance. But I found a corporate partner who was very excited as well to take on this case. So I took it because it was my world. And it turns out I couldn't believe who it was, I, that I knew her and that, you know, she was amazing. And, you know, since that time, you know, she continues to work with me. And, and I also, again, learned a huge amount about nonprofit formation and, and compliance. And now, many years later, I teach a class in forming nonprofits for VLA. So that, again, sort of opened up a window. And that's something that, you know, a lot of lawyers who want to volunteer with us, you know, they're like, I don't actually get to do this in my practice, but I'd love to learn more about copyright. I want to be able to, you know, then once I know more, I can take some of these CLEs and then I'll be able to help with some basic things for the clients. And some have actually been able to sort of shift their practice in a way that they wouldn't have been able to just by the cases they were getting from their firms. And having opportunities to get a little experience is also helpful. And, and you know, we can find a way to do that if they're working with partners who have <laughs> more experience in that area. And it gives them an opportunity to work with different partners at their firms, too. VLA also inspires new generations of lawyers. So they have an ongoing, you know, externship program, summer internships program, not for New York VLA, but with a similar organization in Philadelphia. I did an externship in law school and, you know, spent four or five months, you know, doing intake, you know, listening to these clients for the first times, trying to write down frantically, you know, what they, you know, what they were saying, the facts, the legal issues, and then working with, you know, a suite of lawyers, both in-house and at law firms. And that was another, you know, reason I became an IP lawyer. Right now we have seven summer associates. They're all fantastic. And, and we're just thrilled that they're part of our community. And then, you know, then they go on to the firms and come back doing pro bono work for us. We just had a clinic with one of the major firms in the city and we got onto the zoom for the clinic and I see one of our, one of our old interns there. So they definitely do come back and, and reinforce the idea of volunteering with us, with their colleagues. What kinds of legal expertise would you love to have? Who out in the world that's listening to this, doing all different kinds of law, would you love to have walk in the door and say, I'm interested? What kinds of expertise? It's interesting because it always evolves. And obviously, music lawyer is very handy. But in terms of the cases and the clients who come to us, you know, music, film, theater, 
those are industries that have very unique specialization. But now having lawyers like Jordan who understand AI a little bit, you know, the new evolving technologies is going to become more important going forward. And then we have need for trust and estates lawyers. We have needs for immigration lawyers once in a while, you know, and lawyers who we have a lot of nonprofit formations. So, you know, there's a lot of work for transactional lawyers to do for us. But we also have a lot of disputes. So even, you know, lawyers who, litigators, we always need litigators. And that's not a special expertise. That's just a need because we understand the difficulty of taking on a dispute as a pro bono matter because it is open-ended. Look, litigators are like artists. They're going to fight. You just got to give them a, a, a path to channel it. <laughs> Exactly. And then even employment, real estate, right? We have matters that come up on our end and lawyers who don't think they have anything to add of value because they're not, you know, IP lawyers, they're not music lawyers. And, you know, I usually say that's not, that's not true. You know, we've had several real estate matters in the last several months. We've had several employment related matters in the last several months. At our clinics, we do get a lot of attorneys who are not in particular areas that might overlap with the artists, but, you know, we've had securities lawyers and then recently we had a client who came in with a with a film financing deal. And guess what? It crosses over with securities law. So it worked out beautifully. Yeah. And I know you partner with firms, but can lawyers who might be at a firm that doesn't have a partnership with VLA or are in small firms, can they get involved? Well, that's what I love about the freelancers union, because those clinics are open to everybody. And I send out the invitation to everyone in our system, everyone in our network, ones at law, at big law firms, but also solos, in-house people, small firms. And it's a really fun way for these lawyers because we, we staff these consultations with teams. So we want to have at least two, sometimes three, sometimes more attorneys on each consultation. And that's an opportunity to meet attorneys at other firms or who are working in different areas. So I'm really always looking for volunteers to do that. And then, again, we also love to have attorneys who want to do one-off consultations for us and also teaching classes, which is a great way to explore an area that an attorney might not be practicing in but is interested in. I, I love the idea that you could come volunteer at a VLA clinic and you might be helping to sustain the person who was going to become your favorite novelist. You just It's a postcard from your future. You just don't know it yet. That potential for fame is exciting, but it can also be a tricky thing for people. Some artists get taken advantage of because people see them purely as a business opportunity and trade on the artist's desire to have their work recognized in the wider world. Remember the artist Amy told us about at the top of the episode? His paying job was as a custodian at a courthouse in New Jersey, but the passion that he found late in life was painting. A lawyer manipulated him into a terrible agent agreement and a will, making that lawyer his beneficiary. When he came to VLA to ask for help, he also used it as an opportunity to continue getting his art into the world. He came to us, but when he came to us, he came with bags of his paintings with him and gifted them to us in thanks for helping him. And we did place him with an attorney in New Jersey who helped him get out of these egregious arrangements that he'd gotten himself into. And the artist was able to teach them about his art. 
I learned so much about, I didn't know anything about outsider artists or what they do or how what this means. And it's basically artists who don't have a formal education, but folk art, a lot of folk art. And so, you know, not only do we as attorneys learn about, you know, the legal issues that artists face, but we learn about art in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. And also for myself, when I'm, when I'm, Working with a client and oftentimes performers who come, I have a very personal engagement with that. You know, I can empathize with them in a way that they don't expect. Like they, they, you know, they've never met lawyers before. They don't know what to expect. And then a lot of our volunteers, lawyers like Jordan, have an arts background, have a performing background and can empathize with the clients. And so I think we provide not only the service of legal assistance, which they need, but also an understanding of the specialness of what they do. If you want to help artists too, help with consultations, with transactional issues, with disputes, or fill in some of those educational gaps Amy named, you can do it. Whatever your legal expertise, there is a specialness to what you do too. And there are artists out there who could benefit from your help. You can look for a local volunteer lawyers for the arts organization. You can reach out to artist support organizations in your area. Or you can start a conversation with the art department at your local high school, community college, or university. Even though our field doesn't do standing ovations, never forget that your contributions can be life-changing for the artist you help. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.